Michigan criminal defense attorney Bill Amadeo is standing by in cell block S. The jail visit starts now on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. I am Bill Amadeo from, you know, McManus Amadeo and Grable Associates and... Six. Shiawasa Six. How's it going, live audience? I gotta give it to the live audience. Saturday night. And he's been here since nine o'clock. Nice work. You usually do other things on the weekends, but I'm, I'm glad you're here. Take the pressure off me a little bit. <sighs> you know, guys, I gotta tell you. Trial, trial, trial. It is cray cray time for me and I've been here all day with one quick stop to the Macomb County Jail. Macomb County Jail was interesting. A lot of intellectual women in the drunk tank tonight. It was a very weird moment. They were screaming as I was walking by, um, can you get us out of here? And I made a wrong turn to try to exit it. It was a long day. You know, my sense of direction is not great. The brilliance doesn't go with that geography. Anyway, tonight we're going to discuss Something I have never discussed before since I was... I've actually never really discussed with anybody. And uh, Mike Picotney was my inspiration for this. Mike, if you're watching. Because Mike said to me, I'm getting really good at speaking from the heart. And tonight, I'm going to tell a story from my childhood that's directly from the heart that I never shared with anyone. And... I had inspiration for this one. I was tired last night. And I was watching Some Kind of Wonderful. And, you know, Some Kind of Wonderful... <laughs> I hear you, Mike. I hear you. Some Kind of Wonderful is 1987. Deep, deep high school movie. You know, in 87, I'm 11 years old. Now I'm watching it at 46. And I'm like, holy shit. It's amazing how our life experiences change things. And with some kind of wonderful, still a great movie in my opinion. Keith is the star character, right? And Keith is in love with Amanda Jones. Amanda Jones is the it girl. But the thing about Amanda, she's on the wrong side of the tracks. And she was dating Hardy Jens, and Hardy is the good-looking douchebag from the suburbs it's got a lot of money and she's kind of caught between two worlds and i i guess that's why i relate to this so much amanda wants to maintain her rich friends but she doesn't want to be with hardy and here's keith who has put amanda on this pedestal but watts has always been in love with keith and keith overlooked watts for so many years and Watts is just this badass drummer. Keith's best friend. And in my opinion, Watts was better looking than Amanda. But sometimes you just don't see what's in front of you. And it's amazing how we go for images. And tonight, I was thinking about the two-world concept, you know? I'm going to tell you a story tonight that I did say is I've never shared this before. And it's really weird that I would share a story 
on social media. They'll be picked up on a podcast and all that happy horse shit. I haven't told my inner circle. But today, as I was grinding away at work and I'm listening to my Spotify soundtracks and No Easy Way Out came on, I thought back to this story. And I want to ask you guys something. I want you to think about this because we've all been in this situation one time or another, in one way or another. Have you ever had an identity crisis? And I think for me, the identity crisis starts at a very young age. And we'll talk about the battle between nature and nurture tonight. And I'll explain why I say it's my Citizen Kane moment. But let's break it down. When I was born, Bill Amadeo Sr. was my father. And he was much older than mom. He basically knocked up a teenager. And dad, if you're watching, you're watching. I'm just, I'm going to pull any punches. I'm not close with my father. Nothing against the guy. I'm kind of irrelevant to him in this. He's, he is what he is. Nothing against you, dad, but you were never a father. And I got to tell you that. Thank God you weren't in the picture because I wouldn't be where I am today if you played a role in it. No offense. But dad didn't want to sign the birth certificate. And as the story goes, a member of my family who will not be mentioned put a gun to his head and said, you better sign the birth certificate. Because back then, Italian, Catholic, you sign that birth certificate. It's not like today. Whole different world. So as the birth certificate came in, the Neary's raised me. And we'd be, I'm very proud of that. Mary Lee Neary, Gloria Neary, Matthew Neary Sr., they raised Bill Amadeo. The Amadeos are people I don't know. No interest in really knowing them. But I was this close to being Chris Neary as opposed to Bill Amadeo. Chris Neary. Bill Amadeo. So even from the outset, it was this battle of who you are. Let me tell you about my household a little bit. Don't get into how this dynamic is going to come into play and how this story evolves and erupts. In my house, there were three people. Mary Lee Neary, toughest woman you've ever met in your life. Five foot one, pack a punch, and Aunt Mare gave up everything to be the leader of our family. She was the caregiver. She was my mom's older sister. She was the firstborn. Aunt Mare was the leader of the house. And such an amazing woman, but led a sad life. Because she gave everything for the family. Great singer, talented actress, hard worker, but she never put herself first. She was our leader. Gloria Neri. Mom got pregnant with me at 17. Mom had dreams of singing and dancing on Broadway. That all kind of ended with me. Mom was really a sad woman. Died at 50 years old of ovarian cancer. Looked for love in all the wrong places. She was tough. She adored me. But she was like a big sister to me. And Aunt Mare was the mother figure. And then there was my grandfather. 
grandpa was just a badass master chef amazing artist this man could paint like nobody's business i didn't get that talent from him i didn't get the chef talent from him he was a boxer i got a little bit of that from him he taught me how to throw a great right hook the only punch i ever had great right hooks because of matt funeri senior and grandpa was kind of in this whirlwind here he is and he made money as a chef but he also had the temperament of a chef and if you know chefs you know what i mean um as far as his art goes i mean the man was sick with talent i mean it was amazing but you know he's a street fighter from south philly and you know being an art guy doesn't really fit that mold so he kind of hid that and you know grandpa had a tough life so here's these three people my grandfather my aunt my mom mom pregnant with me real young her first love was my father much older guy aunt mary gave up everything to raise everyone because my grandmother died when my mom was 12 that's a horrible story we won't get into that tonight my grandfather never got to be who he wanted to be and we're in this little row home right and i come around and i am unquestionably the golden boy of the ghetto we have a lot of money and we end up being really poor we'll get into that a little bit later but every shortcoming my family felt they had within themselves it was going to change with me so here were the rules i could study my ass off i could go to practice i could get a job i go to church but that was it there was no pot parties there was no drinking there was no drugs there were no going to cool parties or this or that it was a mission from an early age and from this early age I kind of took to that, right? I accepted the path they put me on, and I was grateful for it. Things changed a lot in fourth grade, and I'll tell you why. In fourth grade, I got this parasite in my stomach, and I was really sick. I developed dyslexia that year, and prior to that, I was a tremendous baseball player. I was getting always. There was no dyslexia problem. And I was somewhat of a phenom. As I got sick, I had to adjust. I'm no longer this elite baseball player. I'm going to have to play in college. I no longer got the A's easily. I had to fight for A minuses and B's. Nobody interested in the dyslexia thing. But before fourth grade, things were different. We had a relative. Let me tell you a little bit more about my family. My family's poor, but we had some rich outliers, if you would. There's a relative. We'll just call this individual a relative. Former athlete. Corporate America. Big time individual. And he was known as the it. He was the role model of the family, and his side of the family was extremely wealthy. And the only time we would see these people is at family events. You know, Catholics, Italians, you know, the church kind of brings you together a couple times a year, right? Whatever. 
I'm nine years old. And I'm this tremendous little phenomenal baseball player. And I'm getting all A's. And he took an interest in me. He saw something in me. So one day, he invites me to his house for a weekend. He wants me to play in this baseball tournament he signed me up for. Now, understand something with my family. This individual always felt he was better than my family. I have it close. The money, the facade, all that shit. So when he wants little Billy Amadeo to come to his house for the weekend, that's a big deal with my family. And I like the guy, so sure, I'll go. And he puts me in this tournament, and I crush it at the tournament. I am dominant on the baseball field. And we're having this talk afterwards with all the intellectual cousins. And these were stuffed shirt people. But what we learned that day was I was smarter than them. We were talking about Raven. Raven was a book by Tim Reiterman that was originally published in 1982. Tim Reiterman was a journalist for the San Francisco Chronicle. And he got shot the airstrip at Port Kaituma during the Jonestown tragedy. And he wrote this amazing first-hand biography, if you would. And we're discussing the Reiterman book with all these elites, if you would. And I knew the book inside and out. I had read it, read it twice. See, the one thing about my grandfather, which that side of the family didn't quite understand, was he was brilliant. He was just poor. He used to make me read the Atlantic City Press from cover to cover every single day. While we didn't have any money, I had to read book after book after book. I was pretty well read for a nine-year-old, to say the least. And as I'm at this dinner with these intellectuals, this relative, I become the apple of their eye. And we stay connected. I'm the ball player he always wanted his kids to be. I'm the intellectual he dreamed of having. I'm it. But I'm not his blood. Well, I'm his blood, but I'm not his child. And he had a couple older kids. Let me tell you about them. One was constantly in rehab off his trust fund. And the girl was a socialite who was partying, hooking up with guys, getting drunk. and both, They were living off daddy's money. With me, he saw this hardworking intellectual that he wanted to mold. We became very close. Extremely close. I would say he was somewhat of a father figure, if you would. I don't know. It's a tough one. So I always say my Uncle Sam was a father figure. My grandfather was a father figure. But this individual came out of the blue. And he took this amazing interest in me. And we just connect. So he says to me one day, I see big things for you. You could do whatever the hell you want. Because I could tell you're already a tough kid. You're brilliant. You're hardworking. You're a great athlete. You got it all. I want to blaze a trail for you, kid. 
I got the money, I got the connections. He goes, I want you to go to private schools and do this and do that. But you got to move. Now, when he says you got to move, I'm assuming the family is going to move. Now, let me explain Ducktown back then. Because Ducktown were the mean streets of Atlantic City. And I don't give a shit what anybody says because I've heard people say things. If you lived in Ducktown in the 90s, you know what horror is. But let's back up for a minute. Back then, it wasn't quite as bad. The neighborhood was changing. He doesn't want my family and me to move. He wants me. He doesn't want them. And he makes this pitch to Aunt Mare, Mom, and Grandpa. And I don't quite understand what's happening at this point. Because you see, guys, the rich part of the family, I was the chosen one. I'm going to go with his pitch, live with him, go to the best schools, do this, do that. I'm going to live a rich kid's lifestyle. But there was a catch with that, and I was having to leave my family. I was his chance to have a successful self-made man as a child that came with a price. The price was leaving my family behind. I didn't quite put all that together right away. So we're driving back from his house one day and he says to me, I want you to come live with me. I want to become your guardian and I'm going to talk to your family about it. And I'm a little confused at this point. Aunt Mare, Mom, and Grandpa were what I knew. My animals, Lightning and Kitten Little and Odie. The animals I grew up with, that's what I know. And I don't realize how bad Ducktown is going to become. How the hell could you at nine years old? But I am the prodigy, if you would. I'm the one that came from the Neary family on Willow Avenue to be accepted to go to the suburbs of Pennsylvania and be this amazing thing in the future. We're going to mold you, kid. And it comes down to nature versus nurture. And he was explaining this to me in the car. And this guy loved to hear himself speak, okay? In your blood, you have Mary Lee Neary. You have Gloria Neary. You have Matthew Neary. And that means you are a fighter. But the nurturing thing... I want to teach you the way of the world. I want you to experience an amazing junior prom when the time comes. I want you to be that rich kid that has it all. And I'm going to make your life really easy where all you have to do is just be you, kid. And everything is just going to happen like that. What's the sacrifice there? It's your Susan Kane moment, if you would. Well, I learned what the sacrifice would be. He had been talking to my Aunt Mare regularly. And he was making this pitch. That I was going to become his. And 
he says when we get back to Dogtown. Billy, go field some grounders outside, because I always field the ground balls off the Patsy Wallace wall. So the reason I was a good fielder, because the hops are really weird there, so I learned how to take a real hop at a very young age. I did this constantly. You can imagine me with baseball, right? Practice, practice, practice. It's the thing about criminal law. It's the thing about sports with me. I always love the practice. When you love the practice, you'll become really good at something, because people resent practicing. I embraced it supposed to do right and um i'm fielding grounders and my one of my cats fritzy was crying at the window and i went to go see her she wanted me to come in and play with her so i fielded my grounders i go in and there's this little area in the living room and i hear the conversation and it hits me i could see it like it's yesterday i could hear i could taste it He's basically lecturing Aunt Mare, Mom, and Grandpop. And the conversation kind of went like this. I'm going to give this kid everything he could ever want. I'm going to make his life easy. He's going to be that cute, rich kid that's a great athlete. He's not going to have one care in the world but to focus on himself. Sign him over. And if you love him, you'll do this. And my mom, and let me back up. This guy could have been Jim Jones, okay? He could have been that preacher that you gave your money to. He had a way with words and it was powerful. And he was such a prestigious figure in my family. Big name. And mom's crying. Mom's like, I don't want to get Billy up. And he's like, Gloria, you can see him anytime you want. But you have to let him go. This neighborhood's going to change. The neighborhood was changing as more casinos were coming in. This is going to be a ghetto soon. This kid is going to have to fight his way out of here. You guys don't have the financial wherewithal. He's different. He's special. Let me control this situation. And mom's crying. And then my grandfather cried. And that was weird to me. Because my grandfather was the toughest man I knew. Badass Matinary. And he's crying. And he's being like the voice of reason. Saying to Aunt Mare and Mom. This is for Billy's best. Even though it's going to hurt us. Let him go live with this guy. Let him experience life none of us ever had. And my grandfather's trying to be the voice of reason. And my aunt, God, I love my aunt. Aunt Mare basically, you're not taking him. He's not going anywhere. And they get this real confrontational situation. And he's yelling at Mary Lee, saying, in a firm voice, but not screaming, Mary Lee, the neighborhood's changing. You cannot provide for this kid what I can provide for him. And she screams back, you can't provide for him what we can provide for him. Yes, the neighborhood's changing. And yes, he's going to go through hell, but he's going to make it through hell 
He's going to be a better man staying with us than he could ever be with you. You're not taking my boy. And I walk in on this. What, what do you do at nine years old in this situation? And um, he sits me down. And he lays everything out. I'm going to give you the life that you deserve. And when we're done, you can take care of your family, but you got to come with me. Let me guide you, kid. You love those baseball tournaments. You love the area. This is going to be you. I'm going to set the pathway for you. You do whatever the hell you want in life. I'm going to make it real easy for you. And I looked at him like, I'm not leaving my family. I'm leaving my animals. What are you, nuts? It's like, do you understand what I'm offering you? I said, this isn't even up for debate. I would never leave my family. And Aunt Mare, real proud, grabs me by the shoulder. She's I told you he wasn't going anywhere. Mom and Grandpa were hugging. Happy I made that choice. But it was a weird moment. And he looked at me and he goes, well, your loss, have a good life. We were never really cool again. When um, I went to his funeral years later, a few years back, actually, I thought about a lot of things. What he did, what he offered. That was really a generous, nice, loving offer. I think he had the best of intentions for me. Problem was this, though. My family, the brutality, the socioeconomic crisis, goddamn Pitney Village, which wasn't there when he made the offer, and then getting sick and everything. I kind of feel like... How do you put a nine-year-old in that situation? And I thought about him. We didn't talk much throughout the years. But I always had mixed emotions. Part of me realizes this guy was really trying to do a good thing. But he really underestimated all those great things he saw in me. He underestimated my love for my animals, my love for my aunt, my mom, my grandpa didn't matter what you could offer me materialistically, I would never leave those people. Now, if the plan was for us to leave together, which in my opinion is what happened when we bought the house in Ventnor Heights, Grandpa was gone, unfortunately. It was always us as a team. I owe Aunt Mare so much. And I love mom so much. I miss my grandfather. I love him. But, you know, if you were Chris Neary instead of Bill Amadeo, if you went with the wealthy relative, it's always been this crossroads with me. And I've always made the choice to go the harder route. Because the harder route it's more difficult at first, right? But it's more rewarding when you get to the end zone. It really is. I know... 
I think I would have been a successful lawyer a lot quicker if I went with him or I would have had a different life completely. And it's weird how one choice can change everything. So I look back at that day with gratitude to him. I also think he really underestimated and pitched incorrectly my loyalty to my family. My family was crazy. I wouldn't trade them for anything in the world. And I think I would have been successful quicker if I went with him, but never would have been me. And uh, I think there's something said about that in any of our situations, guys. And I come back to some kind of wonderful. Why did Keith overlook Watts for so long? Yeah. We look at things so differently as the years pass, you know? It's just, it's weird. And I'm looking at these trials coming up. And you know the ones I'm talking about. And, um... It's a lot of pride in being in these things, man. But there's also an enormous amount of work and emotional energy that just gets sucked out of you every goddamn day. And it's 9.46. And I guess I'll go home shortly. But I don't know. Thanks for listening. Those that tuned in, those that will tune in the replay. Um, but yeah, that's a story I probably should have shared with my therapist instead of sharing with you guys. But I felt, so I was watching that movie last night and the crazy day and the energy that's been drained, that it was appropriate to share that story tonight. It brought me back to a different place. No regrets. So thankful I stayed with my family. But I know how much easier things would have been in the short term. I think sometimes like, we really don't have a choice. I think destiny chooses us on some level. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Tonight, we're doing a live on Matt McManus. Of course, Matt's birthday was a couple days ago. And uh, here we are. And everybody was pretty excited that Matt came to court with me on the Durban motions. And I think this is a sign of things to come. So tonight, I'm going to talk about the history of Matt McManus and myself and break a few things down because people have been asking questions. And Matt's always been a behind-the-scenes type of guy, you know. He's that person who is so brilliant but people don't know about it because he's not the attention whore like some other people that are speaking right now. I, I can't lie. I always like being in the center of attention. I like being in the center of controversy. 
Matt has been like this calming influence. But the reality is the true craziness of McManus and Amadeo lays with McManus. We'll talk about that tonight. For his birthday, I was excited to get him this ball. You can't really, I don't know if you can tell, but Mickey Mantle is autographed right there. And it's a 1980 Yankee ball. Well, Mantle didn't play for the Yankees. He was there in spring training. So was Yogi Berra. It's a pretty cool ball. And every one of his birthdays, I pick out a historic sports gift. It's also this 1977 beer mug. And Matt, if you drink this, you, know, you might want to clean it out. The uh, sports memorabilia shop I got it from. It's pretty seedy. But, great item. Let's take it back. It all starts in 2009. And I can't believe it's been 14 years. Holy shit, right? 2009, I am just out of law school. And I'm starting a tutoring company. And let me back it up further. I had just passed the New Jersey bar exam. And I was working with a firm that really compromised me. They compromised all the associates. Back to Michigan, I have this idea. I'll take the Michigan bar and I'll start this tutoring company. And in my first term of doing that, fresh out of law school, Matt McManus, who was living in Ann Arbor, contacted me for tutoring. And from there we built this bond. We used to do this thing called the paper chase, right? Here's what the paper chase was. The week before finals, we'd get a hotel. And we would just study around the clock. And people don't know this, but he was this extremely hard worker. And law school was such a big endeavor for him. He left New York, came out to Michigan, gambled on himself. And he was kind of fighting himself with this whole law school thing. And I'm tutoring and I'm learning things. I'm not practicing law at this point. And tutoring was a weird endeavor for me. Right after law school, I had these dreams of becoming this big time lawyer. And they kind of went to the wayside, right? I was supporting Aunt Mare, and tutoring became like this passion where I was tutoring 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And as I'm tutoring my ass off, you know, I'm basically supporting Aunt Mare. And you get trapped into it. And towards the end of the tutoring era, I met somebody named Scott Grable. And Scott would change my life a great deal. And it would change Matt's life. We'll get into that a little bit later. But I'm just tutoring. And in about 2012, Matt and I kind of went our separate ways. He got this firm in Ann Arbor. I was tutoring in Lansing. And 
things were just up in the air. In 2015, we revigorated it, reunited it. We had this friendship that we once had, and it kind of caught fire again. And he said, how about you come out to Ann Arbor and work at my firm? Now, at this time, it was weird. Because I wasn't sure. You get caught up in this tutoring thing. Do I want to gamble on going to a law firm? And, you know, sometimes you got to gamble on yourselves. And I decided this. I had students I was tutoring. I was going to finish tutoring them, give them discounted rates, do some for free, have them come out to Ann Arbor. I would drive out to Lansing. I didn't want to not finish the job. I wouldn't take any new students. And tutoring is a whole different thing, man. You want to put people screwing you over. Let me tell you about the tutoring business, but we'll get back to it another time. I go out to Ann Arbor. And I am working at McManus PLLC. It was Matt's firm. And Matt and I were doing civil litigation. And, um, you know, it just wasn't going great. We had this one person that worked with us. And we thought that this individual, we actually had a few people. There's been so many idiots that have come in and out of our lives in this firm. But this one guy was the face of the franchise. We thought he was more interested in smoking weed. It was a rough period. I'm driving back to Lansing a couple days a week. I'm living with Jewel and the original Max. I work at the firm in Ann Arbor. I'm trying to keep this tutoring thing going. And in 2015, everything changed. My aunt raised me. My aunt was an amazing, amazing woman. And in October of 2015, she died. And Aunt Mary was really sad because the house we had in Ventnor got destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. So I had to move her. I was paying her rent. And when Aunt Mare died, it was such a low point in my life. And I'll say two of the only people, guys, I'm not talking about Jewel because she was always there, but two of the only people that actually were really friends during that time period were Scott Grable and Matt McManus. Scott was calling me up to check on me. Matt flew out to the funeral. And the grief of Aunt Mare was brutal. I remember leaving New Jersey after her funeral. And I thought to myself, well, it's now or never. Either we're going to do something with this firm or we're not. We had to take a shot. And at this point, Matt and I were working hard, but we're kind of chasing our tails. And we don't really know which way to go. We're supporting each other, but we're in a lot of emotional turmoil. And let me just tell you, because he is my best friend, there's so much brilliance in Matt McManus. There's so much wit. There's this amazing mind, right? But we needed direction. We had each other. That was all we had back then. And we're trying to circle the wagons. We're trying to figure stuff out. 
you know, we made it through the bar exams together and we made it through law school and we did this and we did that. And here we are on Jackson Road in Ann Arbor and business is rough. We're suffering. And you don't know what to do. Do you go on the court appointment list? Do you just take a job at a firm? And so many jobs have turned me down. And this is where the Scott Grable connection comes in. I see Scott making sarcastic comments, but I'm going to compliment you, Scott. It was 2017. And things were bad with Matt and I. We had each other's backs, but we just weren't making money. Things were rough. And this is a time period when you're in this situation, you're on this team, and you want to be part of this team. And you don't know if the team can survive. You don't know if you could survive. And you're relying on each other. And this is one of the reasons with Matt McManus where there's always going to be internal gratitude. I was lost. I'm out of shape. Aunt Mare just died. Firm's not making money. Tutoring's become a thing of the past. And you're wondering at this point, who are you? What are you? And Matt got me through those times. He really did. He believed things were going to get better. And one day, I call Scott Grable. I tell Scott, the firm is floundering. I need to do some research. Can you hire me to do research for $40 an hour? I will bring that money into the firm. And Scott says to me, no problem. I will find some research for you. Don't worry, you're a hard worker. Things are going to be okay. That was at 8 o'clock at night. At 8.30 the next morning, Scott texts me. Hey, I got a case for you. And I'm thinking, oh, great. What am I researching? He goes, no, no, no. Go down to the Washington District Court and handle this case. Now, <laughs> here's the thing. I didn't know anything about crim law at this point. And I'm scared out of my mind. Here's my friend Scott giving me this case. I don't know what to do. Need the money. And I turn to Matt for help. And he's like, look, I don't know Krim either. So we're like the blind leading the blind here. Pete Winter was helpful back then. Um, And I went there. I did my first criminal case. And the media was there. I said to Scott, this is a media case. What the hell? So I'm talking to the press. First time I ever had a crime case. It was no possession of pot charge. It wasn't no UIL. It was a major case that was national attention. And I'm thrown into the mist. And, um, and Scott Grable always told this joke. He said, I tied you up in Pitney Village with a white pointed hat on and somehow you escaped and fought your way out. 
And that changed everything. And from then on, we became this criminal defense firm. And the cases were coming in like crazy. One thing Scott Grable did, which I didn't know you didn't do, is he was sending me everywhere. I'd be going to Lapeer in the morning, Shiawassee in the afternoon, coming back to Wash and all, and pissing all the other lawyers off. Because, you know, you they thought you were like a carpetbagger. Um, I'd come back, and I would tell Matt these stories. And I got this reputation for doing these crazy outside-the-box motions. And I know, I'm not a great motion writer. We've heard this all before. If you don't believe me, ask Scott Grable. But Matt would have these insane ideas. He'd have these ideas about these crazy motions to do. And I would do them. And you know, you go from being like this weird person to this brilliant person. You're hitting the gym a little more. You're winning these cases. Everything's happening. And then one day, lightning in a bottle happened. Matt and I are working on the Eric Coleman case. May Eric rest in peace. It was an attempted murder case. And the Estes family hired us. And let me just tell you something. This family could have hired anybody. But they gambled on us. And it was not going to play out. This was going to go to trial. And it was a war. For three and a half days at Frank Murphy, it was an absolute war. And it came back not guilty across the board. And um, it changed everything for us. At that moment, I was known as this big-time criminal lawyer. And all sorts of things happened. And while I was in the limelight, what the world does understand is that Matt was that voice of reason behind closed doors. He was the brains of the operation. I was the flash. He was the brains. And I think back to the Bobby Reyes tragedy. You know, Bobby's tough to talk about, but I was just getting done a trial. I was sick and I was tired and I'm at home on a Sunday night and I'm buying some old baseball cards and I'm just going to chill out for a couple days. I haven't taken a day off in months. I'm exhausted and an ex-client text me and they tell me about Bobby Reyes and I go to the Facebook page and um sound like a horrible tragedy and I reached out to Sarah and I reached out to Jose Bobby's parents and their lawyer actually told them to go to the wrong court which blows me away till this day they told them to go to the wrong location and I went, called Sarah, I met her at circuit court, I helped her sneak her phone in, I introduced her to her lawyer, 
gave them a hug, and that was it. And I went home. And I get back to the office, and Matt says, you're exhausted, what happened today? So you know I'm going to go home and go to sleep. I was telling about Bobby's mother, and, um, you know, I just showed the woman where to go. They got their lawyer. I'm going to go crash. And Matt said, uh-oh. I'm like, what? He goes, B, get ready. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you're going to end up being this kid's lawyer. We're going to need to figure this shit out quick. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm going to be the kid's lawyer? They have a lawyer. They're paying for a lawyer. He goes, trust me, you're going to end up being this kid's lawyer. And you're going to go against U of M. You're going to fight like hell against them. He goes, I could see this whole thing happening. Matt has these visions, right? He sees things. He's two steps ahead. Amazing poker player we want to be. And during that time period on Bobby Reyes, it was all hands on deck. And every move I made was reviewed with Matt before. Then I put my own flair on it. But we were trying to like punch blind to try to save this child's life. And here's how things go. There'll be a war. And this is the way I was always taught to do things, right? If somebody's bigger, faster, and stronger than you, charge ahead of their ass. So I start charging. And Matt was teaching me how to charge. He's always been that voice of reason. A couple of years ago, a decision I'm very glad I didn't make. I got offered a lot of money to go to this firm. There was a firm... That wanted me really bad. And at the time they offered me money. That seemed like all the money in the world. Um, a lot less than I'm making today. But back then this was a huge offer. And the individual that ran the firm. Who I have no ill will towards. Were cool. Were friendly. But they said to me. I want you to come to my firm. I'm going to pay you at least this amount of money. But you can't work with Scott anymore. You got to leave McManus and Amadeo behind. And I said no. And at the time, when I said no, I was making a lot less money. The offers had come in. And I thought to myself, and this is where loyalty gets confusing to people, you know. I never would have come to Ann Arbor if Matt McManus had not pushed that issue. I never would have been doing criminal law if Scott Grable didn't push that issue. So I could never see myself not being part of those two firms. Yes, we've had our ups and downs. Matt, I love you so much, but I wish your ass would get to court more. Scott, I wish you would shut the hell up more. That's my inner circle. My inner circle, which will be my inner circle for life, Matt McManus, Scott Grable, Jen Kelly, and Drew Danglish, a.k.a. the live audience. Now, obviously, I'm talking about family. I'm talking about people that became your family. 
despite the fact there was no marriage license, despite the fact there was no bloodline, despite the fact there was no obligation. In this world, guys, we have very few people we can count on. We have very few people in your time of need you could call to actually give a shit. And in my inner circle, I will say, we have each other's backs. The job offers, the Google hits, the drama, it all comes down to those people that really get to know you. Because we put on, like, this image for the world, right? Think how many people really know you. I will say, those people really know me. The best professional move I ever made was coming out to Ann Arbor and working with Matt's firm and staying connected to Scott Grable. There was money thrown my way. There were things going to other states. There were this or there was that. But at the end of the day, if you have that team you love, and I'm lucky to have two teams, if you have that, you got to hang on to that. And I will say there's so much brilliance and loyalty in Matt McManus and Scott Grable. But we built this bond. It will be a bond for life. And the bond is bigger than money. It's bigger than a little more Google hits. I heard this saying one time. It's a very powerful saying. And it rings true when it comes to Matt. The person who chooses money over loyalty will soon be without both. We've built something special here. We've built this amazing firm and we bank heads with the Attorney General. We bank heads with the University of Michigan. We don't run from any case. We will put our lives in the line for our clients. And that is something I'm really proud of matter what's happened with this career, I haven't lost myself. And a big reason I haven't lost myself is because I got Matt in the back of all of us, whispering in my ear. He could tell me when to shut the hell up. He could tell me when I'm being an asshole. He could tell me when I need to go harder, which isn't too often. And he could tell me who really cares about you. We know enough about each other to destroy each other's lives, and that's what a best friend is all about. So, with that being said, through the trials and the tribulations, there's so many people that come into your life. Some people come in for a season, some people come in for a meaning, some people just come and go. Those few people that at your best day and your worst day are the ones that get your text messages, that's critical. And that's Matt. So, my friend, I love you, bro. Love to see your ass back in the gym and covering more court appearances for me. But we are bonded for life. You truly are my brother. And I'm eternally grateful that we came to each other's lives in 2009. And I never want to be in the trenches with anybody other than you and Scott. All right. Have a good night, guys. 
The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.